This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Delaware is a small state, but it waves a proud banner. Its senator became Vice President of the United States in 2009, and today he's running a strong race for the presidency itself. When it comes to education, students have shown test score improvements exceeding every state but Maryland. And when the Obama administration launched a race to the top, Delaware was one of only two states that won the top prize on the first round. Yet plaintiffs, with the help of teacher unions, have charged Delaware schools with being inequitable and inadequate. Well, just this past week, the plaintiffs and the state of Delaware have reached a settlement. Well, all such agreements are necessarily compromises, but often the circumstances dictate that one side gets more of what they really want than the other side gets. So was that the case in Delaware? So to discuss the Delaware adequacy lawsuit and similar law cases around the country, I have with me today Rocco Testani, who is an attorney. In fact, he's a partner at Eversheds Sutherland, Atlanta's uh, premier law firm and one of the attorneys who assisted with the defense for the state of Delaware. He was also the defense attorney for a landmark case in Florida, which the Florida Supreme Court ruled for the state after years, even decades of litigation. So thank you, Mr. Testani, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Good to be here, thank you. Well, Rocco, so what were the complaints that the plaintiffs filed in, in Delaware? What were the allegations? Uh, the allegations were that the state had not uh, adequately funded uh, educational services primarily for uh, disadvantaged students. And, and these are low-income English uh, learner students and students with disabilities. And the claim was that because of a lack of sufficient funding, the performance of these students was uh, low and that there were achievement gaps between these students and non-disadvantaged students. And so that, that was the essence of the claim, a very similar kind of claim that is brought in these kinds of cases around the country. This was a, a complaint that said it violated the Constitution. So it's the Delaware Constitution, I think, that it's, they said it violated. So what's the provision in the Delaware Constitution that was violated here, according to the plaintiffs? Yeah, the, the provision uh, of the Delaware Constitution uh, that, that they claimed was violated is a provision that, that says that the General Assembly shall provide for the establishment and maintenance of a general and efficient system of free public schools. So that's, that's the provision uh, that was the basis for the lawsuit. And again, it's, it's a very broad provision, again, similar to provisions that we see in many states. Well, given, given that, you know, general statement and given Delaware's uh, performance, uh, you know, relative to other states, uh, how, how can you say that this is not adequate? Well, of course, we, the, uh, you know, the lawyers representing the state and the state uh, agreed with, with your, your point there, Paul, which was we think the state of Delaware and the, and, the, and the performance of the students in Delaware has been improving over the, over the last many years. The state has been in many ways a leader uh, in terms of its performance on the, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, especially for disadvantaged students, and has made good progress for those, for those students. In addition, it's, it, was, it is a state that devotes a considerable amount of money 
for K-12 public education uh, on a comparative and absolute basis. So we felt very good about the, the system and very good about particularly a number of initiatives that the current governor had implemented over the last several years um, in terms of funding and programs to improve education in that state. Well, what was the remedy that the, uh, the plaintiffs uh, proposed initially? Yeah, so there wasn't a specific remedy that had been proposed other than that the, that the court should find that the system that the state uh, had, both in terms of, 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 of its funding and outcomes, that it was uh, liable uh, and that there was a violation of this constitutional provision that I just uh, referenced. And, uh, you know, as in most of these cases, uh, once liability is established, the plaintiffs then would like the court to uh, require that the state primarily fund additional dollars for public education and, and undertake other changes uh, to the funding system. Um, so we obviously never got to that point uh, in light of the settlement, but that was in general what they were asking for. Well, uh, the, what were the terms of the settlement? And I think there's something in there to the effect that the governor is going to propose uh, increase in funding for the schools. Yeah, um, the the main provisions, and again, it's it's a it's it's, it's a lengthy document, but I, I just a highlight would be that there was a a funding program that the governor had established a couple of years ago called the Opportunity Funding Program. And so one element of the settlement was to increase the amount of funding dedicated to that program, which were funds targeted for low-income English learners and students with disabilities. So that's going to increase from $25 million a year, eventually to $60 million a year. Uh, and again, the, the settlement provides the governor will propose this, but the General Assembly will have to approve of that uh, since they are uh, they, they make the appropriations. That's one element. Um, the other is to uh, sort of modify the way in which special ed funding is done in the lower grades um, and uh, to bring that into uh, sort of consistency with the way it's done from grades four to 12. There's some additional funding for early childhood education um, up to 12 million by the, by the time the settlement is phased in. And then some additional funding for teachers in high need schools to try to attract and retain uh, the best teachers in uh, low-income schools. Now, all of this is agreed to uh, in the sense that the governor will propose it, but there's nothing here that's mandating the legislature. Is that correct? Yes. Um, you know, given the, the structure of our government, that's, that's the way in which these settlements, when they happen, which is not very often in these kinds of cases, but when they do happen, this is a typical form of that in that the, the, the party to the case, typically the executive officials will agree to make recommendations to the legislature um, and the, the agreement ultimately uh, would be you know, contingent in terms of the dismissal of the case upon whether the General Assembly um, or legislature uh, approves of the proposal. That, that avoids this great constitutional question that comes up in a lot of these adequacy lawsuits. Can a court actually order a legislature to uh, increase its funding for a particular purpose? Isn't that a violation of the separation of powers uh, among the branches of government at the state level? Yeah, I, I mean, that's certainly the position we've taken in a number of these cases, and I think is correct um, that in, in general, 
most state constitutions provide that the exclusive uh, power for appropriations is vested in the legislature. And, um, and, and so in these cases, when there are findings of liability, uh, the courts uh, have to tread very carefully in any kind of remedy because of the separation of powers problem, which is, which is sort of obvious in the state constitutions in general. Uh, the two states where you know this has come up probably most um, sharply were in Kansas and in Washington, where there was a long history of school funding litigation, and ultimately the Supreme Courts in those states became impatient with the legislative response to the court's orders. And in the case of Washington, held the legislature in contempt and fined it $100,000 a day for not coming up with additional funding for the schools. And so uh, there have been instances where this has been brought to a head, but ultimately um, was resolved in Washington and kind of a similar uh, injunction uh, occurred in Kansas where the commissioner of education was basically enjoined from uh, funding any public schools until there had been uh, an agreement by the legislature to, to meet the terms of the remedy that, that the court wanted. Well, they must have reached some kind of a compromise in those two cases because the, the states are still functioning. So yes, they finally do. But I think it does illustrate your point, which is how far can these things go? Ultimately, there will be political pressure, which of course is what happened in Washington and Kansas to come to agreement so that the schools can function. Um, and, and that's what occurred. But it does push the envelope, it seems to me. These cases do do press the envelope on how far can a court go and um, to require a legislature to do something or, or particularly when it involves more dollars being appropriated. Well, is this settlement that which falls short of that a sign that the courts are becoming increasingly reluctant to start dictating to, to legislatures? They may have been a few years back, but maybe things are, are there's a different mood out there as to what the uh, powers of the court should be. Well, I think the settlement obviously was the product of the parties wanting to uh, to resolve the case. Um, but in general, I think the uh, the courts in these cases uh, do recognize and have been increasingly recognizing their limited ability, both in terms of, of mandating remedies that involve more dollars, uh, but also the sort of practical recognition that that any remedy ultimately will take years to accomplish. Uh, you get a finding of liability that's typically appealed to the to the Supreme Court in, in a state. That's a you know year or two process. Come back down, you formulate a remedy. There's typically a year or two of action in the legislature about the remedy. And before you know it, you're four or five, maybe six years in since the finding of liability without really any changes happening with respect to the remedy. So. I think there's a recognition that the courts are not a great device uh, here to try to affect change quickly, for sure. And I think courts do understand that. And I think litigants are understanding that as well. So you also were involved in the in the Florida case. And that's that was a much a longer running case than the Delaware one has turned out to be. Uh, so what were the issues in that case? Were they, they were roughly the same, I'm sure, but there must have been some specifics that distinguished the cases. 
Yeah, I think the big difference in Florida is that the constitution, the state constitution down there had been amended in 1998 with, uh, with, with more specific terms about, uh, about the, the nature of the education that the state was to provide. And in particular, the focus in the, in the constitution was that the state had an obligation to provide a high quality education. And so it, it's, it's a provision that's a little more specific, more specific than the one we just looked at or talked about in Delaware. And the claim there, correct, uh, as, uh, as you noted, was similar to Delaware in that the, the plaintiffs were, were arguing that, um, that student performance on the state assessments uh, was not high enough, that there were gaps in performance between low-income and non-low-income students, and that the state was not meeting its obligation to provide a high-quality education. So very similar kind of claims and, and very similar type of remedy being sought, which was uh, spend more money and fix it. Um, so that case was filed in 2009, I believe, and we ultimately, you know, got a got a decision from the Florida Supreme Court finding in favor of the state in 2019. So it went on for 10 years. Well, that's that's a long time. But in both these cases, uh, the state record on uh, performance is not too bad, according to uh, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. There are these are the two two of the three states in the country that have made the the largest gains in in recent decades or recent years. And so uh, I, you were fortunate to be the attorney defending these two particular states, uh, it seems to me. Well, um, you know, it's interesting where the cases get filed and what the arguments are, um, because you're right. I mean, Florida in particular had a very strong improvement in their NAEP scores from the late 90s to period of time when we were trying the case, which was in 2016, and I think those improvements have continued over time, um, and closing of gaps and really a, a strong record of performance compared to other states, um, and similar similar in Delaware. Um, but, you know, I, I, the focus in these cases, regardless of NAEP performance, and even taking into account NAEP performance is the argument that uh, large numbers of students are not performing at proficient levels, whether it's the NAEP standard of proficiency or state standard of proficiency, and, and that becomes the focus of the cases that the state content and performance standards illustrate or show that, that students, large numbers of students are not currently meeting what the state establishes as its benchmark for proficiency. Well, now there are experts that uh, both sides bring into these cases. So in the Delaware uh, case, I think that uh, you got some fresh arguments from from the experts on the on the plaintiff side, uh, uh, especially as to the efficacy of, uh, of of additional funding. So, um, how persuasive was this testimony to the to the court? Do you think? Well, we didn't get to the point of it being presented to the court um, in light of the settlement. Um, I will say that you know the the presentation by uh, by the advocates for additional money and, and economists who believe that that there is new research that establishes uh, a strong causal connection between additional funding and student performance outcomes that was presented by way of of expert reports in our case. Um, 
and we responded to that. And I think that uh, it has gotten a lot of attention in academic circles. Uh, it's now getting attention in these uh, cases. Um, I, I think, though, uh, my own take is it's hard to ignore the, the decades of additional investment in public schools in this country, the doubling of per pupil expenditures over the last 50 years, and relatively flat performance on, on NAEP, and, and, and credibly say that there's some new finding here that shows for, uh, spending more money in current structures would, would significantly change uh, student performance outcomes without changing other things in the system. So um, it's, it's interesting work. It's, uh, it's, it, it's now making its way into the court cases, and, but we'll see how it plays out. Uh, we won't see how it plays out in Delaware, but we may see how it plays out in other states. This was shaping up to be a case where uh, it would be interesting to know whether the court took this new approach to estimating the effects of spending on, on learning, uh, but it's in the end, it's, it's just that all got shuffled to one side because once you reach a settlement and that material doesn't even get presented to the court, it's all, it's all sort of moot, I, I assume. Well, I, yeah, for, yes, <laughs> at least in Delaware. I mean, I think that the, the academic work that, that is sort of summarized in the reports in the Delaware case continues and the debate continues. Um, and, uh, and I'm sure that it will, uh, it will be heard in a court at some point, but not right now. How many settlements have there been before this one in Delaware? How, how often have plaintiffs been willing to settle with uh, with the state? Yeah, very, very infrequent. Um, I am aware of only a few states where this has happened. Um, we were involved in a case years ago in North Dakota where there was a settlement of the, of the adequacy case um, along similar lines where the governor made a proposal to seek some additional funding and that was approved by the legislature and that case was ultimately dismissed. There was a settlement of a case in California years ago, the Williams case, um, that called for some changes, particularly for um, additional supplies and textbooks um, and other changes in, in California. Um, again, where the governor would propose certain measures, the legislature had to approve of that and that occurred. And now we have Delaware. So those are the ones I'm aware of um, and I follow this pretty closely. They're hard cases to settle. They're hard cases to settle because um, you know, not all of the stakeholders are at the table, um, and often the legislature, for example. So there are limits on what the executive officials can agree to. Um, and, you know, there's reasons in general why we have the funding structures we have and the level of funding we have for schools. And it has to do with other uh, uh, concerns, other needs uh, of the state budget. And, and so it's, it's, you know, it's a complex task to say we're gonna dedicate more funds to, to K-12 because that will come out of some other element of the state budget. Or an increase in state taxes, which uh, it may not be very popular right now given, uh, given the state of the economy. And then maybe the state of the economy was a factor and the, the impact it's having on state finances. Uh, do you think that's a possibility? 
Well, I think in general, yeah. I mean, I think that what people are seeing through this pandemic is that there are many other very important obligations that government has uh, and that have to be funded. Public health being obviously top of mind. Uh, of course, you know, Medicaid is, is the other major component of most state budgets on top of K-12. And of course, we're seeing an, an emphasis now on what's happening in higher education, even though it's not as big of an element of the state budgets, but the way in which colleges and universities, public particularly, are being impacted by this pandemic. I think there's a growing re you know, a recognition in this current environment that you know, K-12 is very important, but there are many other things that are important that the state has to attend to. So given that, are we really at a inflection point in this in the history of the equity and adequacy lawsuits we had from the 70s to the 80s, a period of uh, a lot of decisions involving equity, which, you know, pitted one part of the state against another. Then they uh, shift to adequacy in the 80s and 90s, which initially was very successful, but maybe towards the turn of the century began to see more resistance uh, by the states and, 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 and the courts to, to this idea. Are we seeing another inflection point that maybe this, this, this legal approach to uh, solving educational pro uh, problems is, is waning? Um, I think we're at an inflection point, but we're in the middle of it, and I'm not sure which way it will inflect um, or, or go. I mean, I, you know, on the one hand, I think there has been a growing recognition on the legal arguments and development of legal arguments about the limitations of what courts can do and the proper understandings of the separation of powers. And, and I think in recent cases, a high level of deference, appropriately in my view, to the judgments of the other branches of government. On the other hand, this pandemic and the economic fallout from it, I think is underscoring, and uh, number one, we're gonna have budget shortfalls, and so there's gonna be impacts on state budgets in K-12. And you know, we also are seeing an uneven impact of the online education uh, in terms of, of disadvantaged students and their access and, and how well they can benefit from online instruction as opposed to in-person instruction. Uh, the loss of educational time that we saw last spring and that undoubtedly we're already, you know, we're seeing this school year and what effect that's gonna have ultimately on, on say test scores when we start taking them again. Um, I think those are a lot of unknowns. And so, you know, we may well be in a position where plaintiffs will say, well, look, we got lower funding and, and maybe we have lower performance and, you know, we have all these other issues, so that could encourage more litigation. Um, I think we, it's too early to say exactly. But there might be litigation over reopening the schools. Well, there, there already is, of course. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, but it we, may accelerate if the schools can, don't open fairly quickly. Don't you expect a, a wave of, of, of suits asking for more rapid opening of the schools? Yeah, I mean, I think the states are facing this on both ends. The states that have have moved forward with opening um, uh, and and made it available as an option to families are sued for like Florida uh, for opening their schools um, and and not uh, according to the plaintiffs taking sufficient safety into account. And then you have other states like California where parents have sued to get the schools opening. 
So it's, it's, it's you know, like we're seeing this playing out across the country, uh, both sides of, of the debate are in, in this instance uh, bringing cases. So yes, I think there will be more of that, uh, more of that kind of litigation over the next few months. Well, it's, it's always difficult to uh, reach a settlement in a, a big complex case. And this is about as big and complex a case as you could have. So congratulations, uh, Rocco, for, uh, to you and, and the team for finding a way to reach a, a solution to this problem in Delaware. So thank you very much for joining me. Thanks very much. And I will emphasize what you just said. It was certainly a team effort of lawyers in Wilmington, uh, the state's lawyers and obviously the plaintiff's lawyers working together. So it was definitely a team effort. And thanks for having me today. Well, I've been speaking with Rocco Testani, an attorney at Evershed Sutherland in Atlanta, Georgia, one of the country's uh, leading experts on school adequacy lawsuits. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.